The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. We are in week five of a five-week series. Next week, we're going to get into our sermon series on Deeper, how people grow the, this long walk through a, a vision of discipleship that God has really given our church. We're, we're excited about that upcoming series. Uh, very, very, very excited about that upcoming series, about the vision of discipleship that it gives our people. And it's things we've been talking about, but it, it continues to be refined, and we continue to have a, a cleaner and clearer vision of what it means for us to raise up and send out disciples. And so we're just really prayerfully asking the, the people of Heritage to engage through, throughout the entirety of that sermon series and engage in, in community groups that we're going to be talking about in the next few weeks, our discipleship communities, so that you can go from sitting under the preached word on Sundays to connecting with one another through, through discipleship communities throughout the church, so that you can grow and be molded into a disciple of Jesus Christ. One of the, one of the markers, of the eight markers of being a disciple uh, at Heritage is authentic worship marked by relationships. And so this series that we're in, this five-week series, has been looking at what it means for us to engage in authentic worship. It's one of our core values, and it's also a marker of a disciple. If you go through our discipleship survey, you'll, you'll lean into an aspect of how, how we can begin to think critically and, and reflectively about how is it, Lord, that I am engaging in authentic worship, worship in spirit and in truth. And our hope in the last four or five weeks in the Psalms is that we begin to build out and expand our vision of what it means for us to be worshipers. And so up to this point, we've looked at four psalms. We began back in August uh, on the 7th. We looked at a wisdom psalm. Pastor Jeremy brought us through that psalm. And then we looked at a psalm of praise, uh, which was also a psalm, or rather a psalm of thanksgiving, which was also a psalm of confession, Psalm 32. And then, and then two weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 88, which is a psalm of lament. And we looked how worship can, can even be kind of naked and, and exposed, lamenting before God. And we looked last week at a psalm of royalty as Jeremy walked us through uh, the psalm that kind of focused our eyes on Jesus and on the kingdom of God. And today we're going to wrap up the series by looking at the final psalm in the book of Psalms, Psalm 150. It's a psalm of praise. In our broader study about authentic worship to, today, we, and finally, we, we land upon this, this idea or this, this thought of praise as an act of worship. You probably heard the phrases praise and worship linked together. When I was growing up, we called the, the musical portion of our church services praise and worship. And if you sang on the, 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 the music at our church, you were on the praise and worship team. You probably heard that language before. And so as I thought about praise, and I also thought about worship, I thought, are they synonymous? Is, 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 is to praise worship and is to worship praise? And, and sometimes you might conflate those terms. But as I thought about it biblically, I, I think there's, there's, we need to think about these things a little bit differently. Praise is an aspect of worship, but it's not the fullness of worship. To praise is to express a, a warm approval or an admiration of a thing. To praise God is to express our, our adoration of Him, to shine a light on Him. I've heard some describe praise as the joyful recounting of all that God has done for us. Closely intertwined with thanksgiving as we offer back to God appreciation for His mighty works on our behalf. On our behalf. That maybe is a way to think about what praise is. Worship, on the other hand, is not part of what we offer to God, but it's the wholeness of what we offer to God. Worship can include praise, but it's deeper than just praise. Worship is the laying down of self. It's a full surrender unto the Lord. It's giving all aspects of ourself back to God. This is worship. 
And as we've journeyed through this series looking at different genres of psalm, we've expanded our vision of worship. Worship is not superficial. Worship is rooted in the Word of God and in the character of God. It flows from a deep thankfulness for what God has done in the world, in salvation, and on our behalf. Worship is expressed in vulnerable and transparent ways in the darkest valleys of life. Worship is anchored in the character of God, who He is. And yes, worship can be and is joyful, exuberant recognition of who God is and what He has done. All that by way of setup for Psalm 150, a psalm of praise. Let's read Psalm 150 and unpack it together. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thirteen times in that psalm we see the word praise. Do you remember how the psalms began? Back in verse one, or chapter 1, verse 1, as Jeremy introduced this series uh, the first Sunday of August, it began with the word blessed. It began with God blessing the righteous man. And now here at the very end, the bookends of the psalm is the righteous man giving praise to God. The blessed man praises God. The man blessed by God through the journeys of life and the journeys of the psalm arrives at a place where the blessed man who's been blessed by God offers praises up to God. It's the trajectory of the spiritual life. Psalm 1 begins with the phrase, blessed is the man who. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. This man is like a tree, the scriptures say, planted by streams of water that yields fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers, the blessed man. And then we've journeyed through the Psalms. And in the journey through the Psalms, we've seen highs, we've seen lows, we've seen mountaintops, we've seen valleys, and we arrive at this final Psalm. Thirteen times in six verses, we are uh, encouraged or exhorted to praise him. Praise the Lord. Praise God. Praise him, 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 praise him. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It's a psalm exhorting the people of God to lift up our praises to God. That word praise is the word halal. It's where we get the word hallelujah. It just simply means to shine a light on him, to to boast and to praise God for who he is. It's exposing him. It's illuminating him. It's shining a spotlight on God and saying, look at my God. Look at what he's done. This is the picture of praise that we have in Psalm 150. The Psalter closes with this call for everything. Every creature that has breath to praise the Lord. It's to be done with every kind of jubilant instrumentation. There's this long list of musical instruments. The trumpet, the harp, the lyre, the tambourine. There's to be dancing and strings and pipe and cymbals. The idea here is an uninhibited praise that is being offered to God with loud singing. Exuberant instrumentation, ceaseless motion. I read this week that this is where the worshiper's whole body and the whole congregation is offering praise to God. What a picture. What does it mean for us today to to approach our God 
with this vision of praise. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, I pray that as we, as we journey through this final chapter in the Psalter, God, that you would open our eyes to what it means that we have been exhorted by you through your word to praise you. God, to praise you everywhere. To praise you for everything you have done. To praise you in every way imaginable. God, that everyone might praise you for your glory. God, would you give us eyes to see today what it is and how it is you have called us to praise you. We love you and we invite you to draw praises from us today. In Jesus' name, amen. What a conclusion to the Psalms. We spent five weeks in the Psalms, looked at all these different genres, and now we're landing upon this final exhortation to praise. As we studied this passage as a staff on Tuesday, Kathy Johnson shared a quote that she had read in a, in a commentary. Here's what F.B. Meyer writes. He says, your life, in, he says this in light of the, the wholeness of the book of Psalms, all 150 chapters, the, the, the movement and the topography through the book of the Psalms. Here's what F.B. Meyer writes. He says, your life may resemble the Psalter with its varying moods, its light and shadow, it's sob and smile, but it will end with hallelujahs. If only you will keep true to the will and to the way and to the work of the Most Holy. I love that picture of seeing the Psalms as a, as a trajectory, as a blueprint, as an example of the life of faith. There's utter realism in the Psalms. They reflect the reality of life on this side of glory and beyond. As we journey through the Psalms, we've seen laments and intercessions and complaints and sad songs, and they've been intermingled with Psalms of praise and joy and thanksgiving. And just like the Psalms, our end as children of God will be praise. It doesn't mean there's not going to be sadnesses in life. Sadnesses don't undermine the worthiness of God for praise. Our chief end is for the praise and for the glory of God. I heard someone say that the very shape of the Psalms are utterly realistic about life. In this life, we will have many dangers, toils, and snares, as Amazing Grace says. But in the end, however, you and I, as men and women redeemed by God through his son Jesus, we were made for praise. Psalm 150 is the climax of the Psalter. It's the grand crescendo. In fact, if you look at the last five chapters of the Psalms, all five chapters begin and end with the exhortation for the people of God to praise the Lord. This is a praise that is built on a deep knowing and a deep experiencing of God. I don't have a very deep well when it comes to sermon illustrations. I have my grandson, my kids, and backpacking. That's as deep as I get. So you're going to get an illustration with me in one of those three areas. Today, again, it's hiking. I apologize for those of you that are tired of my mountain stories. But I got a mountain story for you, and I hope it makes sense. Uh, a little over two years ago, I hopped on a plane from Milwaukee, Wisconsin to fly to Medford, Oregon to meet the elders, to journey through the church, to decide if God was calling me and my family out here to pastor this church, to join the pastoral staff that Fred spoke so eloquently of earlier. And I can remember flying, uh, we left like Denver, and I can remember flying over Klamath Falls and my face was glued to the window of the plane, and I looked down at the Cascades as they stretched north. I looked down at Mount uh, McLaughlin. And I just admired the beauty of this volcanic peak. And then we did the big turn, and then I got to see a big sweeping view of the Siskiyous all the way to the coast. And I'm a mountain guy. And they were amazing, and they were beautiful, and I loved them. And I wrote in my journal about how beautiful the mountains were. 
And we landed. I was able to coax the staff when I was interviewing to take me for a hike, <laughs> and they did. Jeremy and Mitch, I think Mitch almost died like four times on that hike. Uh, we went through a hike, and it was amazing, and I knew they were just trying to get me hooked. And, uh, and the Lord called us here, and, and when we landed, I, I, I didn't let any moss grow under my feet. For anyone who knows me, know that I've hiked every trail I can find. I've climbed every peak I can find. Uh, I've been trying to explore and experience. These mountains that I saw from afar, I've been, to ex- I've been able to experience up close. been able to climb summits and hike into lakes and sleep nights on my hammock under the stars. I've been able to, to walk through valleys and hit the mountaintops. It's been incredible. Just this last weekend, my, my dog and I, we went up to the Sky Lakes Wilderness and we hiked into Blue Lake and we got to swim in the lake and eat the huckleberries, smell the air, feel the dirt. Love these mountains. I love the mountaintops, I love the valleys, and I love everything in between. I'm learning to love them more and more as I explore them more each and every day. It's an incredible gift for us to be able to live in such a beautiful place. But the more I get to know the mountains, the more my praise of them has depth. I could praise the mountains when I saw them from the, mount- from the window of my plane. I saw them, they were beautiful, they were grand, and I could speak of them with some authority. But over the last two years, walking in these mountains... Having mountaintop experiences and valley experiences, getting lost and eating huckleberries and swimming in the lakes and walking through the brush, I know them. And the praise that I speak of the mountains now has substance. There's relationship, there's experience, there's depth. And I'll spend the rest of my days, God willing, walking through those mountains, bad knees and all. I praise the mountains because I see them. I see them and I know them more intimately in a much greater way than I did from the plane of that window. See, this is analogous to the spiritual life. And I think analogous to the journey the Psalms has taken us on. We have this ever-growing knowledge of God. We can know him, we can see him, we can behold him, we can praise him when we encounter him afresh for the first time. Scales are peeled off our eyes. We see God and we praise him. And then the spiritual life is this ever-growing, ever-deepening, ever-journeying experience where we experience the valleys and the mountaintops and everything in between. Sometimes it's dark, sometimes the sun shines on our face, but we're always with him. And when we speak praises of him, they're based on substance and relationship and experience and depth. This is the picture of the praise at the end of Psalms. It's not just a a quick little, hey, praise the Lord, great. That's the temptation when you read a praise 13 times in this chapter. It would be, oh, we're supposed to praise God, next topic. There's something much deeper here for us. The reason the Psalms end with these five chapters that call us to praise the God is because it's a praise that is rooted in a deep knowing of God. It's a worship based on something substantive. The more we come to know God, the more authentic our praise of Him becomes. How appropriate that this amazing prayer book, psalm book, worship book of the Bible ends with five chapters in a row calling the people of God to praise God. Amen? Chapter 146 calls us both at the beginning and the end to praise the Lord. Chapter 147, chapter 148, chapter 149 all begin and end with a call for the people of God to praise the Lord. Praise him for his reign lasts forever. He has the sure hope for God's suffering people. Praise the Lord for his work in rebuilding the broken and sustaining his creation. Praise the Lord, uh, all of God's creatures, for his divine protection and provision. Praise the Lord for the way he delights in his chosen ones and for the way in which he enacts his justice. These are the, the four chapters leading up to chapter 150 and then chapter 150. Thirteen times, praise the Lord. This is the doxology to the book of Psalms. And chapter 150 is a doxology to the doxology. You could say that the last five books of Psalms form the doxology for the whole book of Psalms. So could, 
let's review the structure of this chapter, because I think it's important for us to see the structure, because that'll help us understand the meaning and what is the depth of praise God is calling us to. There's four things I want you to see today. We see the where of praise, we see the why of praise, we see the how of praise, and we see the who of praise. If you look at verse 1, we see the where of praise. Where do we praise him? Praise God in his sanctuary, in his mighty heavens. So where do we praise him? We praise him everywhere. We see the why of praise. Why do we praise God? Well, for his acts of power, verse 2. For his surpassing greatness. The why of praise, where, why do we praise him? Well, we praise him for everything. Everything that he has done. Then we see the how of praise. How are we to praise him? Well, we're to praise him with the sounding trumpet, with the harp and lyre, with the timbrel and dancing, or the tambourine and dancing, with the strings and the pipe and the cymbals. Six times we see the word with in verses 3, 4, and 5. So how are we to praise him? I'll, I'll convince you of this later, but what the Psalter is telling us is that we praise him in every way. It's an exhaustive list. We are to praise him in every way. And who is to praise him? Every creature that has breath is to praise him. So everyone. So here's the movement of the psalm. Where do we praise God? We praise him everywhere. Why do we praise him? We praise him for everything he's done. How do we praise him? We praise him in every way. And who praises him? Everyone. Everywhere, everything, every way, and everyone. The big idea is simply this. If I could try to summarize Psalm 150 in one phrase, this would be it. Praise of God is to be a never-ending, all-encompassing, joyful function for those who know and love him. I think that's the summary of the chapter. Praise of God is to be a never-ending, all-encompassing, joyful function for those who know and love him. Let's unpack that a little deeper. The where of praise. We're to praise him everywhere. What's that mean? Well, the psalm begins with this exhortation to praise the Lord and praise God in his sanctuary and in his mighty heavens. That word sanctuary is sometimes translated in his holiness— it's simply a sacred place. It's a sacred thing. The idea in the psalm here is that, that in the sanctuary of God, the people of God gather to worship him. But worship is not limited to the sanctuary. We praise him, yes, in the sanctuary, but we have to spill into the streets and across the lands, into faraway coastlines, into other continents, and even beyond. Because then the psalmist says in the second part of verse 1, we are to worship him in his mighty heavens. That word heavens is the word expanse. This is the idea of, of this, the visible arc of the sky. It's a word that's used in Genesis a bunch when they're talking about the formation of the heavens. This, is, this idea here is from earth to heaven to the ends of the universe, everywhere. There's no place you will go where worship is not the appropriate response, where praise is not the appropriate response to our God. Derek Kidner, a, a kind of a classic scholar in his commentary on, on the Psalms, he said, His glory fills the universe. His praise must do no less. Praise is not to be contained into the sanctuary. It's to spill out of the sanctuary into the streets, to the outermost regions of the earth, to the very end of the universe. We aren't to limit praise to a place. We're to praise the Lord everywhere. I had a friend in my very first church I ever pastored. I've mentioned him previously. He was a, a world-renowned uh, botanist. He was the dean of the botany department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. His name was Dr. Wayne Becker. If you ever took a cellular biology class in college, if you had a textbook called World of the Cell, he wrote it. The most widely distributed book for cellular biology for undergraduate studies globally. Wayne is the author. 
And Wayne was, uh, was known for saying that science is the gift that God has given us to see and praise the wondrous things he's made. Anything that we see, he has made anything. And everything that we see, he has made. Think of the things we see with the naked eye. The sun setting on the Pacific Ocean. The snow-capped summit of Mount Shasta. If you go to the Midwest, you have endless seas of grain waving in the, in the wind. If you see a father and a child playing the innocence of a family, of love, you see glacial lakes. There's just so much to see. And everything that we can see with the naked eye, he is there, he has made it, and he's worthy of our praise. I think of what the psalmist writes, David, in Psalm 139. In speaking to, the, to God, he says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. And so we praise him with what we can see with the naked eye, but we can also praise him with the tiniest things. The most minuscule thing we can see with an electron microscope is a subatomic particle. You've got electrons and neutrons. And protons, and then even smaller than that, I'm not a chemist or whatever it would be, a scientist, but my son was teaching me this week about quarks, the, the smallest known building block of matter. Even there, God made that. He designed that. He is there. He is worthy of praise, even in the tiniest of things. What's the biggest thing we know? What's the grandest thing we can see with the telescope? Well, I know because I Googled it, and Google never lies. So I'm basically an astronomer. The biggest thing we can see is the Hercules Corona Borealis Great Wall. This is the largest known object in the universe. It's a galactic filament. It's a vast cluster of galaxies bound together by gravity. It's so wide that it takes 10 billion years, light years, to travel from one end to the other. We can see it with telescopes. God is there. He made it. There's nowhere we can go, not to the tiniest or the grandest, where he's not worthy of praise. He is there. Everything you will ever see has been made by God. No matter where we go, he is to be praised. Not just in the tabernacle, but in the heavens. In fact, if you look a little more closely at verse 1, the psalmist tells us there is praise in his mighty heavens. Think about that for a second. That means that as you and I gather in this place today to lift our voices in praise, there's another worship service taking place. It's a more perfect worship service, and it's currently taking place in glory. I like what the commentators of the ESV Study Bible say. They say, His mighty deeds for his people and the excellent greatness of his character indicate that with this topic of praise, the voices of human worshipers alone are too feeble. Let the heavenly host help. We are being joined by a heavenly host in praising our God. Right now, our humanity limits us. We have deafened ears and dulled sight and senses. Can you imagine what it'll be like one day when we're in glory and in glorified bodies and there's no more limitation on our senses? What new sounds our ears might be able to hear for the glory of God, to the praise of his name? What new tastes and smells and sights we might behold? What new things we might feel to the praise and the glory of God for what he has done? There will be a day in glory when we will join all the other saints in the heavenly host. We'll gather around the throne of Christ and in unison we will cry out and lift our voices with perfect melody. And together we'll sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. We'll gather around the throne of Christ, and on our face we'll be before him. We will sing, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We will sing, Amen, 
blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And today, when we stand up in our seats, and with the one instrument on the stage today, we can join with hundreds of other instruments that God has given us in our vocal cords, and with this orchestral, emphatic, exuberant praise, we can lift our voices to God as a practice for eternity. The psalmist calls us to worship God in direct proportion to his creation. What has God created? Well, he's created everything. So where ought we then worship? Well, we ought to worship everywhere. Remember the big idea of the passage. Praise of God is to be a never-ending, all-encompassing, joyful function for those who know and love him. And there is nowhere you will ever go where the right response will not be the praise of God. Amen? So the where of praise is everywhere. What about the why of praise? The why of praise for everything. Look at verse 2. Praise him for his acts of power and praise him for his surpassing greatness. Notice that the, this psalm, in this particular psalm, um, the call to praise is not circumstantial. Which is, it's fine if it is. There's plenty of psalms that have a circumstantial call to praise. God, you have delivered me from my enemies, therefore I will worship you. It's appropriate for us to praise God for, for his activity in our lives. Every good gift comes from God and we should respond with praise. But that's not what's happening in this psalm. This praise does not flow from what God has done, but from who God is. Acts of power here that are mentioned in verse 2, this speaks chiefly to military strength, military prowess. The idea here is that, that, that God is a God of conquering might. He is a victorious God, and therefore we ought to praise him. There is no act of God where the right response will not be praise. He is victorious. We're to praise God in never-ending, all-encompassing, joyful it's a function for those who know God and love him. I was at my wife's my new school. My wife started teaching this week at, at Grace Christian. It's her first year as a third grade teacher. It's been really exciting to watch her ease into this new role. And uh, so my wife and my kids and I, we've been hanging out at her classroom and helping her. And so Thursday, she had a chance to meet all of her new students, and she was cute. She was, like, nervous to meet her students and their parents, which was awesome. And I was excited for her. But we went up on, on Thursday morning to spend some time praying over the desks and over the kids. And, and I was running back to the car to grab something really early on Thursday morning. And I saw Mr. Tedderud, the principal of Grace, walking down the hallway, preparing for the morning for the students to come. I know he's been in administration for, for a long time. And we had this brief conversation. And, and, and he just shared with me some of the, the curveballs that had been thrown his way that morning. And then he said, you know, but God is sovereign. And he walked away. And I know sometimes we as Christians can use that as sort of like a bumper sticker to kind of just, you know, throw it on anything. Yeah, God is sovereign. We don't think a whole lot about it, just meaning that, you know, God's not asleep at the wheel. And so we, but the way Tedder had said it was, uh, it was like a declaration of the character of God. God is sovereign. And in this, in this sermon series, we've, we've dealt with psalms of lament and some hard things. And yet we're still called to praise because God is sovereign. And in his sovereignty, we know that darkness doesn't win. We know that God, through his son Jesus, is victorious. And so like what Paul writes in Romans 8, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And sometimes, God in his grace, he gives us eyes to see and, and lives to experience his victory in the, in the here and in the now. We get to see and taste and experience God's, God's victory, his, his full redemption of a thing. And, and, to, and we praise him for it. Sometimes, however, there are difficult days. 
And it's hard to praise, but our praises are anchored in the promise of full redemption, in the knowledge of knowing our God is victorious in and through his son, Jesus. And so we praise him for everything. Where do we praise him? Everywhere. Why do we praise him? For everything. Thirdly, how are we to praise him? We're to praise him in every way. We see six times the word with in those three verses, three, four, and five. And they list all these instruments and, 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 and dancing and, and tambourines and harps and lyres and all. The idea here, the idea that's being painted here in these three verses is the praising of our God is to be done with great intensity. It's to be a joyous and an intense praise of him. Derek Kidner again, he said, these distinctions of instruments, of instruments here that we see, all these different instruments that are listed, that's not to be pressed beyond the fact that every kind of instrument, whether it's solemn or gay, percussive or melodic, gentle or strident, is rallied to the praise of God. Think of our voices as an instrument rallied to the praise of God. And if you look at the list of instruments, they're not normally associated with temple worship. These are instruments that would accompany military victory or, or celebrations or weddings. These are, these are instruments of celebration. And then we read, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. This is a call for us to lift our voices in song in praise to our God. We're not to be passive in our singing to God. I get it. Sometimes it's tempting to be passive, and we don't want people to hear if we sing flat or we don't like the song, or whatever, so we kind of get timid, and we don't really sing. But the whole point of lifting our voices to God is to not be passive. The whole point is to join in and declare with those brothers and sisters around us what we believe to be true about God, this redeeming God of ours. When we sing and lift our voices to God, God knows the language of our hearts. When we, when we open our hearts and minds up to him in song, there are lyrics that we speak with our mouth, human lyrics that are limited. Human language is limited. It's the expression of our heart that God listens to. And we're lifting ourselves up to him, good, bad, and ugly emotions our whole lives, and we're laying it down before him, giving it back to God. To sing is literally to be obedient to verse 6. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Singing is literally every breath lifting praises to God. And it's to be communal, and it's to be vulnerable. Think about the act of raising your hands in worship. That was so perplexing to me. I was never raised in a tradition where people lifted their hands in my little church growing up, if someone lifted their hands, my mom thought they were going Pentecostal. And I, I, we just didn't lift hands in worship. We just were like, you know, like this the whole time, hands in pockets. I don't know why, that's just how it was. But the whole point of raising our hands, well, at least in part, is the, is the picture of surrender. Think of, when, think of when you give yourself up to an enemy or to something greater. You raise your hands. I got no fight here. I got no fight. I'm, I'm yours. You can do whatever you want. I'm, I'm giving myself to you. When we raise our hands in worship, it's like a surrender unto the Lord. And when we lift our hands in worship when we're singing, we're, we're pouring out an expression of our heart beyond the lyrics we even say, and our hands are lifted in surrender. It is a picture of praise. It's a picture of worship. I was reading through Romans this week, and the first 11 chapters of Romans are the, the doctrine of Paul unpacking the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then there's this transition in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Then it's like Paul shifts and he says, okay, in light of what is true about God and his son Jesus in the gospel, how might we now ought live in light of that truth? And so there's this huge therefore in Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, 
In light of who God is and what he's done in redeeming you, in light of that, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Your whole selves, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. To worship God is to give him our whole, our whole bodies. Jesus wants more than just a heart. He wants all of us. This is a picture of discipleship. We talked about the series we're going to be teaching deeper a few moments ago. And that's what we're trying to just, I personally am trying to grow in this understanding as a disciple of Jesus. I know our staff, we're trying to grow what it means for us to put all of ourselves under the lordship of Christ, under his rule and reign. And the question we ask on this series is, how do people grow? Not how do people grow spiritually, because I think we have a tendency as, 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 as people to think, okay, I have my spiritual life, and it comes over here, and then I have my family life, and my vocational life, and my social life over here, and we bifurcate or we separate our spiritual life from our everyday life. That's not a biblical vision. We're to give our whole selves to him. So the question we ask is, how do people grow? It's this picture of worship. It's giving all of ourselves over to him. So every area of our life is given back to God as an act of worship. Our time and our talent and our treasure is given back to him and God-glorifying stewardship. Our relationships are given to him that we might live authentic relationships marked by love. We give him our minds and our beliefs so that we might have gospel purity and a mature doctrine. We give him our vocations that we might live missionally no matter where he has us. We give him our affections that we might have authentic worship marked by relationship. We give him our character, that he might put his character in us, that we might walk in godly character. We give him our emotions, that we might be emotionally healthy disciples of Jesus. We give him our plans and our agendas and our ambitions, that we might have a willing submission to God. This is a picture of what it means to give ourselves fully to him, and that's what we're going to unpack over the next eight weeks. We're to worship God with all of ourselves. I love in Ephesians chapter 1, there's these big run-on sentences, how the apostle Paul writes. And kind of in the middle of the first chapter, Paul has one of these long run-on sentences beginning in verse 3. And and what he's saying is he's saying that, that those men and women who are redeemed by God through Christ, they are, they are to, to, to live for the praise of his glorious grace. In other words, those who are redeemed, are, what we are redeemed for is the praise of God, that he might be glorified. Listen to how Paul puts it. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I'm mindful of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Goes on in verse 5 to say, In love... He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. God has saved you through his son Jesus. He has redeemed you. Verse 6 tells us what our response now needs to be as redeemed saints. He has redeemed you, Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We have been redeemed that we will praise him with our lives. There's no arena in your life or my life, no area in your life or my life where the right response will not be to give it all back to God in praise of him. He is the giver of all good gifts. And whatever gifts I have received, whatever things I have received, it is my right response in praise to give it back to him. The idea of the text is that that praise of God is to be a never-ending, all-encompassing, joyful function for those who know and love him. And so we see the where of praise everywhere. We see the why of praise for everything. 
And we see the how of praise in every way. And finally, we get to the final point, the who of praise. Who is to praise him? Everyone. Everyone. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Everything that has breath praise the Lord. We did some thinking this week about breath in our staff gathering. Uh, Again, I'm basically a respiratory therapist because I googled this. And uh, I discovered that... I discovered that the average human takes 22,000 breaths a day. Uh, Over the course of a year, that's a little over 8 million breaths. And if you live just shy of 79 years, which is the average life expectancy of American, that's well over 600 million breaths in your lifetime you will breathe. 600 million breaths. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Think about every breath that you breathe. The 22,000 breaths a day, the 8 million breaths a year, the 600 million over the course of your life. And I wonder... I wonder what you and I spend our breaths on. I was trying to think about my life honestly. What do I spend my breaths on? And I was trying to think of it in order of like what I spend my most breaths, breaths on down to the least. And I think I spend my most, breath, most of my breaths are spent praising my grandson, Wilson, which is really hard to convince me to do something else with my breaths. But still, he's a gift from God, so I praise him. And then I praise family. And then I talk about politics. Then I talk about hiking and backpacking, because you guys know that. Uh, then I talk about church stuff. And then anyone who knows me well know I spend a lot of breath talking about Bigfoot and my desire for him to be real. Uh, I talk about sports, MMA, track, football. And somewhere down the line are breaths that are wholly given back to God for his praise and his glory. If I were to take a pie chart of what my breaths are spent on, I would be pretty embarrassed. As a pastor, the slice of pie praise would get in the analysis of the breaths I breathe. Have you thought about how you will spend the 22,000 breaths God has given you today? Or the 8 million breaths he'll give you this year? Or the 600,000 breaths he'll give you over the course of your life? We're all to praise him. Everyone. And again, there's something more here, right? Because as we gather, what, there's 200 people, 300 people here in the sanctuary, if that. A couple people tuned in on the line, got some folks in the overflow. And if you count up all the people in the Rogue Valley or in Jackson County who are in the church today for the, pray, for the purpose of praising God, you'd have about probably 10% of the population of our county. The census data on our county is pretty hard to read. 72% of our county is post-Christian. They've given up on the idea of worshiping or praising God. And so everything that has breath is to praise the Lord, except everything that has breath is not praising the Lord. What's that mean? Well, there's a reason Fred was standing on the stage today. We are called, as the church, to use our breaths to tell the unbelieving world that there's a God worth praising. We're called to mission. This is a call to mission. John Piper famously writes in in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, he says that, he says that worship exists, or missions exist because worship doesn't. The reason we have missions in our church, because God's ultimate end is for the people, his creation, to worship him. And mission exists that we might tell people of Jesus that they might learn to worship him. Piper writes this, he says, Therefore, worship is the goal and the fuel of missions. He says, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions is our way of saying the joy of knowing Christ is not a private or tribal or national or ethnic privilege. It is for all, and that's why we go. Because we have tasted the joy of worshiping Jesus and we 
want all the families of the earth included. We're to invite the whole earth to lift their voices in praise of the one true God. Psalm 22 verse 27 says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. Piper concludes by saying, Seeking the worship of the nations is fueled by the joy of our own worship. You can't commend what you do not cherish. You can't proclaim what you do not prize. Worship is the fuel and the goal of missions. I'm mindful of what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15. He says that everyone who calls on the name with their breath, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he kind of goes through this kind of conscious stream of thought, this, this logical thinking of, okay, if people who call upon the name of the Lord with their breath, if they're going to be saved, how do we get to that point where people who don't know Jesus are one day calling out the name of Jesus and worshiping him with their breath? How do we get there? And so Paul goes through this logical thought process. He goes, well, how then will they call on him whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching, without someone using their breaths to proclaim the gospel? In order for someone to hear the message of Jesus and proclaim him as Lord, they need to hear someone else using, using their breaths to proclaim the gospel to them. And Paul arrives at this logical conclusion. How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Oh, we pray about how God might use our little church to send missionaries out into the world around us. I mean, to the places of work in the Rogue Valley, to the schools and the sports teams, the neighborhoods, that the people of God in this place, with praise on their lips, might use their breaths to talk to their neighbor, who is a, who is a, who is a stranger, but through, but through using your breath and using your feet, you enter into the life of your neighbor and they become not a stranger but a neighbor. And relationship forms. And then using those breaths that God has given you to speak and praise God, you're able to see this neighbor as friend. And they're in your home and they're a part of your life. And then using the breaths that God has given you, one of those 22,000 breaths you're given every day, you utilize that breath to see that friend introduced to Jesus and brought into the family of God. This is the picture that Paul has. This is how we use our breath. How might God be calling you to use your breath to make a stranger a neighbor, to make a neighbor a friend, and to see a friend become part of the family of God? Because there's no breath you'll ever breathe where the right verbalization will not be the praise of God. Praise of God is to be a never-ending, all-encompassing, joyous function for those who know and love him. There you have it. There's Psalm 150. Where are we supposed to praise him? Help me out. Everywhere. Why are we supposed to praise him? For everything. And how do we praise him? In every way. And who is to praise him? Everyone. Amen? This is awesome. So simple. Marching orders. It's how we're supposed to live out when we gather as saints in a place like this. And, and God would have it that this psalm would land on a communion Sunday. So as we consider the Lord's table, let's consider it in light of what we've just learned. Let's do so in reflection of this psalm. As we, as we approach the Lord's table, let's think about what this psalm has revealed to us about God. If he is never-ending, then praise of him should be never-ending. And it won't be. If he is sovereign over all things, then we're to praise him for all things. If he created all of humankind, then praise, him, praise for him should flow from all 
of humankind. Praise is to be this never-ending, all-encompassing, joyous function for those who know and love him. And then if you look at the psalm, especially look at verse 2 with me, one of the reasons we're called to praise him is for his acts of power and his surpassing greatness. It's at the table, the communion table today, that we have the opportunity to consider the greatest act of power that God has done on our behalf. Now, all there, there are countless acts of power. There's the parting of the Red Sea. There's creation. There's the flood. There's so many amazing acts of power that are detailed. Him appearing by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The presence of God, the, the hand of God, the favor of God, the, the stopping of the Jordan River, the falling of the walls of Jericho. There's so much. The, the, the bringing down of fire on Mount Carmel. There's so much that God has done. These amazing acts that he has done. But all of those acts throughout all of biblical and human history point to the one great act. What's the one great act? Well, it's what Jesus has done on our behalf. Amen? It's the cross. All those great acts of redemption that God has done throughout biblical history all pointed to the final and definitive act of redemption he's accomplished for us through his son at Calvary. I love how Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians, verses 6 through 11. Let me read this to you. This is Paul writing about what Jesus has done in this great and powerful act. Though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What did Jesus do? He emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, Paul writes, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even the shameful death that happens upon a cross. Therefore, through this act of Jesus on the cross, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every other name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.